0: Welcome to Intelligent Industry, a show from Capgemini. I'm Vito Labate. On our last episode, we took a close look into the technologies that are promising to change the underlying ways that business and society operates, with a focus on the transformative effect that 5G and edge computing will have. It's important to understand though, that all of these technologies are the tools that are transforming business today. Intelligent industry is about bridging the physical world in which we live and work with the digital world. In business, it's about enabling the connection between the digital and the engineering worlds to help any company build intelligent products, run intelligent operations, and provide more intelligent services. On this show, we look beyond the tools and try to understand the harmonious ways that these technologies can be used for a more sustainable and intelligent future. But make no mistake, this is not only about the future, it's happening right now. On this episode, we're going to take a look at something that all of us experience on a daily basis. I'm of course talking about mobility and how we get around, from the roads that act as the arteries to our cities and towns, to the vehicles that enable our mobility, it's not just about transporting people, goods, and, and resources is about enabling a level of freedom and access that was previously impossible. But there's so much more to do. To build out this vision of the future of mobility, we're going to need to tackle some important changes to our physical highways and build new digital ones. Autonomous automobiles or self-driving vehicles are the heartbeat of this new approach to mobility but they're gonna require a level of intelligence unlike anything we've ever seen. That's where we'll start, with our automobiles, where there's far more going on than meets the eye. This is Anima Anand Kumar, Director of Machine Learning Research at NVIDIA and Bren Professor at Caltech.
1: I want to first talk about what we mean by next generation AI, right? So what's now, right now currently that the deep learning revolution has enabled very well, and then what's still missing. And to me, the primary aspects are going from supervised learning to unsupervised and self-supervised learning. Having this ability to overcome the dependence on label data is an important one. The other is in terms of having more robust priors. Uh, you know, uh, We have incredible robustness in human perception, right? Uh, We're able to make sense of all kinds of blurry images, occlusions, all these degradations. And you see all these examples of neural networks with very small perturbations that are imperceptible completely fooling the network. So that's the second facet that I think uh, a lot of, you know, things have to be overcome for deep learning to be enabled in practical scenarios. And the third one is in terms of like designing, right, better tasks, not just uh, optimizing in one fixed benchmark on one metric, but in real life, we have multiple objectives. We have uh, to be adaptive. We have to quickly change from one task to another.
0: Clearly the brain of any autonomous vehicle is reliant on artificial intelligence and the processing of an immense amount of data. So you're essentially training a computer to see and sense. But how do you get it to react? Is it possible to train an automobile for every scenario?
1: What we see is humans can do very well. In fact, those that are careful and they like solving puzzles can do like 99% with accuracy, whereas machine learning ones can barely come up to 70%. What we see is now this huge gap in terms of being able to not learn even very simple concepts that humans can do very quickly quickly. And so we found this as a way of what's missing in the current algorithms. I'm curious, though, what
0: creates bad data for the vehicles? Can the cars self-correct themselves when they experience it?
1: Of course, there is a significant gap between what humans can do and what AI can today. Uh, But to me, the question is, are there mechanisms in the human brain that we can try to mimic in AI? maybe not faithfully generate every aspect of it because right. there is even so much we don't understand very well, but can we mimic? I think this was critical to understanding what we know from the neuroscience side and bring that into AI. And what we realized was that the crucial aspect that's missing in current neural networks is the feedback, right? So when you're seeing me on the screen or perceiving any object out there, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just... Um, a direct decision by the brain right in the sense it's uh, you have the signal coming from the external world and that goes through a feed forward neural network uh, you know similar to what we see in artificial networks but then the brain has its own generative model and then the it's able to provide feedback because of the learned representations because of what it thinks you know that i should look like on the screen if there are any gaps if you know the bandwidth and that's uh, that's what we realized was critical to build into standard neural network architectures that are only feed forward and so we designed this mechanism that now adds feedback in a recurrent way and learns a generative model in terms of you know if i'm classifying an image as a cat how should a cat look like can i try to reconstruct some representation of the cat and by doing this, we can now provide inherent robustness to the network, meaning even if during training it's never seen uh, degraded images, it can still, at test time, be able to have a robust uh, classification of what's in the image. And to me, I think this is a great foundation for building more robust uh, AI.
0: Here's Frank Wamez from Capgemini. He's been close to a project that's seen the impact on a city when you begin to think about our roads in a more intelligent way.
2: Before I go into the cities, because I think think there there are a couple of things in play here. First of all, and and I I had the fortunate situation, it was already end of 2015 that the the Dutch government did a fact-finding trip towards Silicon Valley with the Minister of Transport on what the status of autonomous driving is, and I I was in the fortunate situation to be on uh, on that trip. The fun part on that moment in time, and I actually still think that is the case, is that the human is not ready yet. (laughs) So if you look at the human, you know, they need to be in the car. First of all, do I trust the car to make the right decision for me? And, you know, we technology gigs, you know, we, we, we will love the idea to drive in it. But, you know, do I as a human being actually trust that information? And if I look at the recent riots, for instance, in the US, you know, do do we trust the information that we have? Do we trust the authorities that rule over us? You know, if if, if already we see so many questions about authority, will I give then my life into the authority of a car? So, you know, that is one. The second thing is, at that moment in time, the interesting part was that uh, all accidents with autonomous cars in California needed to be uh, mentioned and addressed to uh, to the road office in, in, in California. At that moment in time, no accident was caused by the car, but a lot of accidents were caused with the uh, with the autonomous driving car. But not by the car, but by other people who actually took decisions around the autonomous driving car, which got into the accident with the autonomous driving car. So there were people that wanted to take a picture, you know, didn't brake on time and just, you know, braked. It was, you know, the autonomous driving car that already started to break down because the autonomous driving car could actually see that a car was uh, going to, to, uh, to have too much speed to go through a red light, but the car behind it didn't do it and then smashed onto the car. So again, you know, we need to think about it and actually Stanford at that moment in time did a very good study on, on you know, what are the effects of people inside the car and, and the people around the car and how will they interpret it if they see somebody without, uh, without a steering wheel driving. So, so that is one. So I think we humans are not ready yet. And how do we make sure that we get enough confidence and that we can deal with the circumstances around it? The second thing that that we that we that was very interesting from that trip as well, was that the 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 vice mayor of Amsterdam, who was responsible for transport, he basically said, you know, if you really want, and he triggered Google, he said, if you really want to do a good test, come to Amsterdam. I will allow you to actually make those kind of uh, uh, experiments. And and the good thing is the reason why you want it, if, if you can survive in Amsterdam, then you can survive everything. Because again, here, it's not that the car will not make the right decisions. But if you are in Amsterdam, and I don't know if you have been there, you know, it's, it's bicycles going from left to right, scooters, you know, bringing food around, not paying attention, etc. And again, here comes the point. Is the car at that moment in time ready to make the right decisions? What will help, and I think that is infrastructure where actually cities could help with, is... Can we start building communication points somewhere in streets where we know, you know, it is a very dangerous place which starts communicating with the car or start sending the data towards the car by which actually people at the car can start anticipating or, you know, can we put chips on bikes? So uh, if we now see, you know, I've got my phone or uh, perhaps they should make a deal with the, with the phone makers that I can see that there is a lot of traffic, which is, slow driving, so potentially this is a uh, a bicycle, you know, I need to interpret that in real time already within my car.
0: What's interesting here is that the more work we do to improve our experience on the road, it also creates opportunities beyond just mobility. We can make more efficient use of physical real estate and encourage less unnecessary ownership of multiple vehicles, and even re-envision ideas about car sharing.
2: Uh, what we already see is uh, uh, certain companies I, I work with one company where actually they say, you know, we're not going to sell the car anymore, we're going to sell mobility and, and our car is actually a very good vehicle for that, you know, and in that case, and uh, Tesla also sometimes says, you know, why, if in the evening you're at home, you know, why, why do you have your car standing outside of there where actually it can make money. So, you know, having that and also, you know, if I have all my spare time in my car, why not do I make my car not a a virtual retail center? And actually, I'm just going to purchase a lot of stuff that that hour when I'm sitting in the car. So the creativity that, that car manufacturers can have on completely alter and change their business model is, I think, definitely something that they are looking for. And the question is, of course, always, you know, how can I spur the need? And the need will come definitely, I think, with the change in, uh, in, uh, in the demographics. Uh, if I look at my children, my children, you know, they, they were still eager to get uh, their driver's license. But, but you know, the, the one is still preferably driving on a scooter because he can park his car quicker and faster, you know. But what if I can now just order a car who drops me off and I don't even have to think about it to park the car anymore? Then he will switch over directly to the car. So there there are some changes I think by the technology selfiness of youth that definitely they will have more trust as I already said you know if you now give me an autonomous car I'm such a tech geek you know I will jump into the car and I think more and more the youth will be uh, will be there for, for seniors, you know, how can you create an offering that, you know, if you're above 70 within the Netherlands, for instance, you know, I have to uh, have permission again for extensions of my driver license. And if I have certain uh, deficits in my health, I probably cannot have it. That means that, you know, from the 70 or 75, I actually risk losing part of my independence, you know, think about that, you know, what is the business model I can put behind that if, you know, you can still have your independence uh, the moment that you want to have it because you can have an autonomous car driving for you who doesn't need to have a driver's license, so to say. I think the other thing is, you know, how can we build trust in? And I think what you will see and you will and and it is currently already happening is bringing in the technology that slowly uh, merges us in a kind of natural way into autonomous driving so if you now uh, buy your car and i, I recently got my uh, got my new lease car you know it already has lane distance uh control uh it already has of course cruise control so you know i can just sit it has lane correction you know if i get out of the lane it automatically corrects me and it puts me back into the lane again so you know th- th- those are basic technologies that if i drive for a long time now uh, you know, actually I can, you know, I still have my hands on the steering wheel, but you know, if I if I get a little bit dozy off, I will definitely go don't go into issues because it will break automatically, it will keep me in my lane, you know. Th- that's the first step. And I think more and more we build these kind of technologies which initially are positioned as safety measures. More and more the end user will, I think, get trust that, you know, perhaps the car can take better decisions than I have. So why not give over the complete control? There is a, a research piece that uh, that Capgemini invented for M. M is the, uh, the mobility uh, company from Volvo Car. So it's a separate brand and basically it only focuses on mobility as a service. So you know, not owning a car, it can be any brand, but it's mobility as a service. And they were interested on, uh, and they're very active now in Stockholm, and they were interested on what is the positive effect that M brings towards Stockholm. The fun part was, you know, first of all, it prohibits people from buying a car. So all of a sudden the car, which is only used for, you know, an hour or, you know, an X number of minutes per day... Is now being used continuously. So, so the production of cars and all the things, the materials that come from it, you know, the the the, the COT emission that we have in manufacturing sites, etc., you know, will be radically reduced. So that is already one. You know, less ownership actually also means less burden on society. The second thing that came out is that they actually prevented around 42 million euros investment from the city in parking lots. So not only <laughs> did they save money, it also, you know, if you want to build a parking lot, you have to build with concrete, etc. can you imagine what the COT production is, which has nothing to do with the car as an object, but just with the car being able to park somewhere. If I don't have to park somewhere, all of a sudden, you know, I can broaden the the, the streets where people walk on. I live. Uh, I, I used to live in the city center of Utrecht, beautiful city, where some of the streets, because of course it was built in the Middle Ages, you know, streets are very small where you can walk up as a pedestrian because the cars need to drive over there. If less cars are there because I don't have to park them over there anymore, all of a sudden I can broaden the streets and all of a sudden the whole experience that people have within the car, within the city will completely change.
0: While the vehicles on our roads are indeed becoming more intelligent, they're still very reliant on an ecosystem of other factors that might have a longer journey to change. I'm talking about the providers of public transportation infrastructure like our roads, It's true, edge computing in our cars can enable real-time decision-making, and 5G allows our vehicles to be connected, but we need the surrounding infrastructure to become smarter too. This isn't going to start with technology though. These changes are dependent on fundamental change at higher levels. We need to start thinking about something like a smart city and what role intelligent automobiles have in that larger ecosystem. This is Pierre-Adrian Hanania, He's a global leader in artificial intelligence in the public sector at Capgemini. Pierre, what's your opinion on the readiness of cities for these kinds of changes to the vehicles that we're expected to see on our roads? So, leaving a
3: bit the vehicle, just the sole aspect of vehicles, but also going through all this data that is around when we talk about a city or a territory. I guess that, yes, the city, the data is there. What is strongly needed right now is definitely the data governance. And when I hear uh, that, that question, I I would like actually to extend the answer to to saying that it's a job that needs to be done by cities and territories, but definitely in a cooperation with the industry and with, yeah, for example, utility stakeholders, water stakeholders, electricity stakeholders. And and that's basically what we also see in the cities today that have succeeded. To give a few examples with Barcelona or with Dijon, what we have seen there. In the quest to, to build their data playground is that they have gathered uh, around one table, the data, and the stakeholders, the players around this data.
0: I have this vision, and maybe it's just me, but I'm sure our listeners are the same way. I think of a smart city. I have this almost futuristic view of something that is far off into the future where the city's intelligent and knows what I'm doing and what I'm going to need even before I know myself. But I wanted to get your opinion. What is a smart city? How do we define the smart city? And how does that differ from a lot of the sort of popular culture views that we've understood a smart city should be? Most of the definitions
3: uh, I read by by also uh, political institutions, for example, refer to an authority city or regional that provides services, and in my field, public services through digital channels. To me, and when we talk about this journey towards a data-driven organization or a data-powered organization, the point of data really is crucial to me, to master data in a way that enables uh, the city to create its digital twin, its digital footprint, in order then to be able to provide, deploy services that makes the territory more attractive, connected, green, Or mobile or mobility friendly or secure for others. So I guess that's that's the moment of data maturity when we do not we do not fall into this trap of tech solutionism to do one service in a digital way just because technology is a great thing but where the city actually embraces the the potential of data in order to on a structured way transform itself in in, in a data powered actor
0: so data is the key to uh, your definite definition of a smart city uh, makes sense i feel like it's turned our image on of what the city is on, on its head because really the question is who's responsible? I think in many in the past we've said well, the local government is responsible or the local, local authorities are responsible for making a city. But that seems to fundamentally have changed now. Pierre, I don't know what your thought is, but who's responsible? Who's the onus on now to implement change towards a smart city? Is it just government? Is it private Um, organizations? Is it the citizens? Who's the responsibility lie with going forward?
3: Yeah, I I think that like in in many other cases, the the answer will be a bit of all of those. What I see these days in in successful smart territory projects, and, and on Dijon is one of these, is really that they said one of the key success factors was to bring in everyone concerned by the project and involved in the project from the beginning. And since we are talking about our sweet home when we talk about our city, it really definitely concerns everyone. And and therefore, what Ondijong did, for example, was to bring together the industry for the data they master, the political arena and the regions as well, in order to avoid the um, digital divide, in order to legitimize the decisions, in order to have this decision-making power. And of course, as well, the citizen, they did it through uh, different things. And maybe we'll talk about that further, but just to to bring in this aspect of smart cities as well, they involved local startups that bring the newest innovation spirit into the pot. And they also brought in, yeah, simply citizen through mobile apps or through feedback aspects. And I really like one of these examples uh, on this latter point in uh, a center in Singapore that was uh, planning the future of the urban planning projects. They wanted Mm -hmm. to build new bicycle roads. And what they did was to invite the any citizen, any given citizen to, to visit them in the center, bring in, they brought in virtual reality. So the citizen rode on a bike in the center, but with virtual reality applied and was able to discover roads that are not yet implemented.
0: You said something in there, you were talking about the city of Dijon in France, you were talking about Singapore, but you also made reference to a term that I've heard you use before smart territory. So what is the difference between a smart city and a smart territory? How do you define a smart territory? I would say that a
3: smart city is always a smart territory the contrary is not true. Sometimes one of the one of the biggest and I was discussing it a few days ago in Germany they were asking me are smart cities pushing the urbanization plans in our societies and and isn't there a, a city elite emerging from the smart territory plans and I had to say from the client meetings from the organization meetings that I have I see that the, the idea that lies behind mastering data for smart territories really profits to any given territory. It can be a city, of course, but it can also be a forest where we would assess with geosatellite intelligence the danger of bark beetles eating uh, themselves through the trees or fire risk assessment. It could also be a land use optimization for uh, small scale farmers or just land use optimization for any regional authority. And and, and that's the the beauty of the smart territory approach, be it on sea, in a forest, in a city, or as a region, the, the same thought applies. It is really about mastering data infrastructures in order to principally make your territory more attractive, secure, mobility friendly, so basically whatever the pain point of your own city's DNA is.
0: This idea of a smart city is the perfect example of what happens when the right components come together to create something truly intelligent. Next episode on Intelligent Industry, we will look at how artificial intelligence, connectivity and infrastructure all come together to create something more sustainable, and supportive for our communities. We'll put a spotlight on the ethics of how much data is collected, where the responsibility for change comes from, and how we can help build a more intelligent future through smart territories and smart citizens. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you to Anima Anand Kumar from NVIDIA, Pierre-Adrian Hanania, and Frank Wamez from Kepgemini. You can find out more about them and the work that they do in the show notes. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. Intelligent Industry is hosted by me, Vito Lavate, and produced by Capgemini and Adrift Entertainment.